Hello and welcome to another episode of the Breachside Broadcast, home of the finest foxcasting either side of the breach. Tonight we travel to the Three Kingdoms for the beginning of a tale of the supernatural. Our story concerns a young girl, family obligation, and beings from beyond. I hope you enjoy Hunger Unbound, right after this word from our sponsor. This episode of the Breach Sarb Broadcast is brought to you by the Obsidian Gate of Kamakura. Come visit the great deity in his shimmering third eye. They say that if you look into that eye, you'll see into another world, and that only from that world may look back upon you. For a limited time only, get 10% off at the gift shop with each admission. Hunger Unbound by N.A. Wolf. The pale siren thirsts for what is no longer hers, a dream now denied. Matsuo Basho, Songs of the Three Kingdoms. He had always watched the pale little girl from beyond. The only could remember every moment of her lifetime with pristine clarity. The day she was born was especially unforgettable. It was the same day that she had taken her mother's life. The crying wretch had come out the wrong way. Her feet had emerged first in a tangle, and her arm was so tightly wrapped around her spindly neck that she would have suffocated had her father not made the ultimate sacrifice to cut her free. The panic of the mother's death had been delicious, the anguish almost savoury. It felt sweet upon his tongue. He let the taste linger there until he could stand it no more. He hated himself for being so indulgent, but then again there was simply nothing comparable to the melancholy flavour of death. Yet he could not remember the mother's passing as pleasing. He had already invested so much time shaping her into a perfect vessel for his ascension, and she was to be his one hope of escape from the world beyond. Lingzuzi had done it. Amma had as well. But they were bigger and stronger than he was, and he could not leave like they did without a companion from the other side. Shackled like a sick dog, and forced to contemplate the threads unravelling from afar without spinning them himself, he conceded that it was better to let this puppet die than to suffer his own unmaking at the hands of laws beyond his control. If he were to cross and come to her aid, the pain would have been unimaginable. Grudgingly resigning himself to wait for another perfect vessel, the only watched the weeping man swaddle his child with one hand while stroking the locks of her mother's corpse with the other. His gaze fell upon the babe. The little one had taken his first vessel away. It now seemed like divine justice that a new vessel be supplied. Thinking quickly, 
Yoni enshrouded the infant in a blinding crown of heavenly gold to mark her as his own. In the looming darkness, all cried out into the night as one. The little girl squirming in a pool of her mother's blood, the father who'd lost his one true love, and the only trap behind the labyrinthine walls where the fabric of reality met the impossible world beyond. She could see the lights and hear the voices for as long as she could remember. They had both been faint at first, but if she really concentrated, she could make out the tiny, whispering orbs as they fluttered through the air like lightning bugs. In the beginning, they terrified her, but she soon learned that the lights seemed to enjoy it when she played with them. She remembered how, as a toddler, she would try to catch them in her tiny hands, but each time they bobbed wistfully beyond her reach. Can you sense them too? she'd once asked her father, Yukio, as he tucked her gently into bed. She liked the way he always folded the embroidered edges of Mother's silky lilac quilt beneath her tatami sleeping mat. Whenever he kissed her goodnight, she was always snug and warm. It was the closest thing to a mother's embrace that the little girl would ever experience. No, but don't be afraid, Azami-chan. Those from beyond have chosen you for great things, just like they chose your mother. The little girl's wide eyes danced with fear. If she was chosen, why did they take her away? Will they take me away, too? The smile slid from her father's face. They will love you and your children as your mother loves you still, he replied, blowing out the lamp and leaving Azami to her own devices. Fighting her fear, as Azami did every night, when the lights were brightest and the whispering the loudest, she traced the floral designs of her mother's quilt over and over again with a pale, thin finger. Alone in the dark, the little girl focused on the one thing that gave her comfort, the thought of a family. Father had said that those from beyond would love her children. Could she really have children one day? She hoped so. Father wouldn't let her have any friends because they might find out about the lights. She was so lonely. Maybe she could be the mother to her own children that her mother never was to her. I will raise them well, Azami promised herself, as she slowly drifted away into a dreamless sleep. Maybe they will see the lights too and we can all play with them together. He watched her as she grew slowly but surely. She was shaping up just the way he hoped she would. Yoni was incapable of nostalgia, but whenever he watched her, he could sense that fetid feeling linger somewhere on the periphery of his senses. It was nowhere near as strong as his love of slaughter, but then again, how could anything really compare? In contrast, the process of caring for this new vessel was repetitive and thankless. So much threatened her, yet she would never know. Since he was unable to manifest himself in her world, the souls of the departed were his eyes and ears. They all feared him, small as he was, and at his command they surrounded the Oni's little charge in a haze of gold, glowing and whispering fiercely whenever danger was close by. Many times had the girl been threatened, and many times had the Oni and his spirit slaves intervened. On any given day, when her father was too occupied to watch her, she might wander dangerously close to the river, slip while climbing one of the cherry blossom trees, or even fall prey to the ruthlessness of other mortals, which rivaled even that of his own kind. Yet each time the Oni's lights guided her to safety. There was simply no cost too great to pay for her survival and there was nothing he was afraid to do when it came to preserving her livelihood. Nothing except crossing before it was time.
the pain would still be unbearable. In fact, he had told Emma that he was afraid of nothing the last time they met, the time when she had showed her back to him as she left the prison of beyond, to join Ingzuzi on the other side. But even to her he had lied. For deep down, Leonie knew that there would come a day when the pale little girl would no longer heed his warnings. When she outgrew their novelty, she might dismiss the lights altogether. He would have to cross then, even if she wasn't ready for his ascension. As a young woman, Azami finally learned to accept the way her eyes saw what others could not. She had embraced her clairvoyance just like all the other strange happenings in her life. The bodiless footprints in the sand that kept pace during her twilight strolls along the ocean. The lamps that relit themselves no matter how many times she blew them out. And even the distorted shadowy reflections she saw in mirrors and glassy puddles that skulked just behind her own. All were part of a haunting menagerie that she shared with no one but Yukio. Afflicted by visions that she accepted but never understood, Azami lived a sheltered existence. She helped her father maintain the family temple, never once leaving Kamakura, the place of her tragic birth. Kamakura would seem just like that of any other sleepy prefecture, but for the hundreds of pilgrims who flocked to its central shrine every day. Azami liked to watch them as she performed her daily chores to maintain the temple under Yukio's stern eye. Her family had cared for it for centuries, and its future rested upon her own shoulders, just as it had rested upon those of her father. She would nod in feverish excitement every time Yukio told her that she was destined to continue passing the shrine's maintenance down to future generations. The responsibility of raising a family of her own filled her with great pride. It gave her a sense of purpose, which she applied zealously to all the tasks her father set upon her. Oh, how, in her desperate loneliness, she wanted a family of her own for company. More than anything, she wanted a loving husband and children that she could keep close. The same children whom she would imagine as a source of comfort as a child when the whispering light scared her so badly. Yet her loneliness had also cultivated a rare sense of curiosity. As she would sweep the brittle flagstones, rake the iwakura, and polish the incense burners, Azami could not help but notice the habits of the pilgrims whom she served. Though many were clearly from Nippon, others had travelled from as far as Chungo and Shosen, or even the southern kingdoms, sacrifices and offerings in hand. Today was no exception. During her morning rounds, Asami noticed that the selection was just as foreign as ever. Many of the pilgrims had garbed themselves in humble orange robes, shaving their heads and eyebrows in the traditional fashion, a way of deprecating themselves before the Oni and the ancestors. Yet others wore regal yukatas of rich purple and blazing saffron, putting each foot upon the earth, as if it was theirs to keep. Some brought burnished prayer wheels engraved with swirling characters in strange languages, or little effigies of their ancestors garbed in soft silken cloth. Popular were the beaded necklaces gleaming with opal, jade and emerald, or whatever simulacra those less fortunate could scavenge. Others carried thin wooden curio boxes of lavish red and lustrous black, each concealing home-baked cakes, candied fruits, and bottles of rice wine within. These boxes were of particular excitement to Asami, although she had learned the hard way that it was bad luck to eat the food meant as sacrifice for the Oni. Yukio had caught her doing this once when she was six. 
He didn't care that the lights made her do it. She never forgot the hours of penance prayer he had made her recite beneath the flickering incense burners as the halo burst before her eyes. The sweets that had so sorely tempted her would forevermore taste like ashes in her mouth, every bite thereafter reminding her of the harsh rap of Yukio's broom handle on her sore knuckles. Asami brought herself back to the present as she sprinkled the breadcrumbs to feed the koi. The little fish swam in the sparkling stream at the place where all the pilgrims, rich or poor, humble or bold, walking alone or laden with sacrifices, ended their great journey at last. The Obsidian Gate At least that was what the villagers of Kamakura called it. It was an odd name for a divine structure whose own magnificence and grandeur transcended human understanding. There was, of course, nothing gate-like about it. It was instead a massive effigy, taller than the surrounding mulberry trees and the size of a small ship, a breathtaking depiction of a great deity who had supposedly travelled from Barat Ganaragia to the ends of the earth before ascending to beyond. Atop his polished head was a shimmering stone of milky emerald that glittered every time the sun rose and fell behind the greying sea. A third eye, forever watchful of those who bowed below. There was a legend about that third eye. The locals said that it was a barrier between worlds, a thin window through which the Oni could spy upon the living with the help of traitorous ancestors, whose spirits found no peace after passing. As haunting as it was, the deep richness of the emerald never failed to captivate his army. It filled her with curiosity rather than fright. Where had it been found? How was it so bright? What was it? Every time she looked at it closely, she thought she could see the same lights that had always accompanied her, gleaming thinly beyond its glassy veneer. There must have been thousands of them arrayed in an infinite expanse, trapped like little stars. Excuse me. The voice came from behind in surprise, and Asami dropped her bag of koi feed into the pond. A swarm of gleaming orange fish encircled the bag like a carrion over fresh kill. Looking up, she saw a big man at least a head taller than her. His Nipponese was broken and imprecise, and Asami noticed that he wore not a yukata like the other pilgrims, but instead a sweeping grey trench coat and thick brown leather boots. Atop his head glimmered a pair of silver-rimmed steam-fitter goggles. As the stranger lifted an arm to brush his matted hair out of his eyes, Asami caught sight of a strange tattoo on the underside of his forearm. It looked like a sickle crossed with a candle lamp, but her glance had been so brief that she couldn't be sure. He shuffled, fiddling with the sleeve of his coat before she could take a second look. How late is the shrine open tonight? He did not look her in the eye, instead casting a nervous glance up at the obsidian gate, locking his gaze with the glittering gem in the centre. Asami was about to answer, when the lights burst in front of her, and the muffled boom of hundreds of whispers filled her ear like the roar of a storm cloud. The voices were louder than they'd ever been before, and the lights almost blinded her. She reeled back in shock, tripped on her own kimono and fell harshly to the ground, skinning her elbow. Miss! the foreigner shouted. The other pilgrims turned and gawked at the hulking giant of a man towering over the young woman on the ground. He backed away nervously, cursing under his breath. It's all right, it's all right, Asami pleaded, picking herself up from the ground, 
still blinded and deafened. She could barely hear herself, and she was sure that the voice she used wasn't her own. I tripped. She turned away from the foreigner. All visitors must leave by sundown, she said sheepishly, trying her best to check her embarrassment. When the lights and the whispers finally died away, Asami washed the blood from her scrapes. This time, her visions had been especially severe, but she was consoled knowing that her father had not seen her shame. Asami and Yukio sat alone at the foot of the obsidian gate, their preferred place to dine on warm summer evenings. The sun had already set, and a pale moon began its lonely vigil over the hydrangea fields. The chirping of cicadas had long since drowned out the muffled crash of the ocean waves and the clopping of horses' hooves. Even the usual din of the tatami makers, paper presses, blacksmiths and millet merchants that usually haunted the bustling streets had dissipated, lifted away by the gentle sea breeze into the rolling hydrangea fields in the distance. You need to find a husband soon, Asami-chan. If you wait much longer, I may never meet my grandchildren. Yukio passed Asami a steaming bowl of soup. She gave a sigh of relief before picking at the tender pieces of pork and seaweed floating inside. She could not really taste them. Her thoughts as lost as the mist of miso swirling in the porcelain bowl. Thank the ancestors. Yukio had not heard about her embarrassing fall. But the foreign man from earlier had been so... Strange. The way the lights had fluttered around him and the whispers. She had never seen anything like it before. Her father seemed to sense her dismay. Children. They're what you've waited for all these years, aren't they? Why are you so glum? He stared at her intently. You know there are quite a few eligible bachelors who would give their right hand just to join the remaining one to yours. What about Kai, the fisherman's son? He has a good heart and he's quite strong. How would I know? You've never let me spend time with him, or anyone else, father. Yukio chuckled at her scowl. You must understand, it's for your own good, but maybe it's time for me to trust you a little more. His gruff voice descended into a whispery hush. I know that the lights are real, Asami. I know that you can see those beyond. But can anyone else? He sighed. To them you'd be mad. And who would marry you then? From where would your children come? Asami continued to scowl at him, but soon she could resist no longer and smiled. Yukio laughed with her as he put her hand in his. She would forever remember his expression. A look of peace, accomplishment, and pride. A bolt of magical energy blasted the flagstones beneath them and showered both father and daughter in splinters of stone and bronze. Yukio went flying across the court, and Asami was thrown backwards against the breast of the great deity. The backside of her head smashed against the hard obsidian, and she slumped slowly to the ground, winded as all began to fade to black. She could sense the blood congealing in her hair, but paralyzed from shock. She could not resist the five foreign men standing over her. The blue fire dying from their palms seemed to flicker out with a will of its own. All were dressed in dark black, their steam fitters' goggles glinting in the pale moonlight along with their oily prosthetics. With sickening realization, Asami recognized the mysterious stranger whom she'd seen earlier, barely perceptible in the hazy gloom. The lights were still fluttering over his head, 
and the whispers grew so loud that they roared like a thunderbolt in her ears. The doc said no survivors, one of the men offered nervously, as he stared at Sami's broken body. Come on, Titus, stick her, damn it, so we can grab the stone and go. The Katanakas can't know we've been here. Another one of the thugs glanced round, pacing from foot to foot in the shadow of the great deity. This place scares the shit out of me. Haven't you heard the stories? It's a damn wonder why the doc wants to get mixed up in this mystic nonsense. Shut it, both of you. Get the rock while I take care of this. Titus distributed crowbars to his crew before he drew a sharp knife from the inside of his boot. Licking his lips, he locked his eyes with Asami's quivering gaze. It's a shame, miss, but doctor's orders, he said, without the slightest hint of remorse. Before Asami could even utter a whimper, Titus ruthlessly plunged the blade deep into her stomach with a savage twist. Trapped beyond behind the glassy surface of the third eye, the Oni howled with uncontrollable rage as his second vessel bled out before him. He had tried so hard, and yet her stomach was split no differently than her mother's. He had failed. Twice. Without his vessel, he could never join Ingzusi. How could this happen again? Had he not warned her, he had seen what she could not, the pure, predatory, greedy nature of a lost soul. Mortals were so easy to read. He could see the man's past flicker before him like a sputtering candle, a troubled childhood, some time in prison, and an oath of allegiance to a syndicate known to those of the East but whose name had been uttered thousands of times by bureaucrats and law enforcement from Vienna to Cairo. He had seen it all in the blink of an eye, and the old cute lurking at the centre of it all, like one great spider spinning in a web. Yet unbelievably, the vessel was still living. The Oni's fears had come true, and he knew what he had to do. There was still time, and it was now or never. He braced himself for the agony, before prematurely forcing his essence across the barrier between worlds. If he had entered her spirit but a fraction of a moment later, he would have been unmade by the pain. The first thing Asami remembered after the agonizing pain in her stomach was the voice. It filled her up like song, and she could see the lights burst and pulsate in time with every syllable. Her agony palpitated with every word like an ebbing tide, as though the voice was trying to shut the pain out. It was utter delirium. You're hurt, it cooed. You need to let me in. You can trust me. I've been with you for as long as you can remember. Shocked as she was, Azami lay stock still, eyes closed as if dead. She could sense the other attackers begin to climb the gate, directed by Titus barking orders from the ground. The harsh rebuke of their cobbled boots on the sacred obsidian was sickening. Stay away from me, she answered. Let me die, whatever you are. I don't care any more. The lights had made her suffer. They had made her different. They had even taken away mother. How could she trust them now? Leave me alone. Haven't you hurt me enough? The voice was quick to retort. Hurt you? I've saved you. She could feel it ringing inside her skull, trying to ensnare her. Let me in, foolish girl. You are running out of time. Do you not fear death? 
I fear death less than I fear you, she retorted defiantly. Then came pain like she'd never experienced before. It pierced her brain like a knife as the voice tried to force itself upon her. Let me in, the voice shrieked again. Though the pain was so agonizing that she could not even cry out, Asami stood firm. Resolute, although beaten by waves of agony in a never-ending crescendo, the lights had controlled her in life, but they would not do so in death. She would die alone, but free. Stubborn girl. Suddenly a bright flash forced Asami to open her eyes. Searing fists of aquamarine met a gleaming Nipponese blade hardened with enchanted steel. Miraculously, Yukio had reappeared to strike at two of the mages, who had not yet begun the climb, katana in hand. Although they were swift, the arcanists were no match for Yukio's precise, measured strikes. One of them was decapitated with a graceful slash delivered in mid-air, and the second felt the full force of a flawless, backhanded swing collide with his chest, cleaving him in two. For the briefest of moments, even the lights in Asami's head stopped glimmering as though in surprise when Yukio's eyes met hers. The corners of his mouth twitched in relief when he registered that although she was injured, she was still alive. It was that same second that cost him everything. Yukio never saw Titus' bullet come from behind as it tore through one temple and burst out of the other in a spray of blood and skull fragments. The ghost of a smile still danced upon his lips as his body fell to the ground in a crumpled heap. Within an instant, her greatest protector and confidant was gone forever. There was nothing left to lose now. The voice uttered a single word. Revenge. As grief, desperation and shock overcame her, Asami let the voice in at last. The pain in Asami's stomach and head immediately evaporated, and she felt rage coursing through her veins like she had never experienced before. Now, girl, the voice crowed, let us show those fools the true meaning of suffering. Titus gasped as he saw the same battered, bloodied woman, whom he had so arrogantly presumed dead just moments before she picked herself up gingerly from the ground. Her fingers were clenched into fists, and her black eyes glared at him with hunger. Swearing, he aimed his derringer straight at her head, but his finger never made it to the trigger. Impossibly, Asami's jet-black hair, lustrous and sticky with blood, floated eerily above her head with an unnatural arcane glow. Coiling into obscene tendrils, they shot for Titus' throat faster than a bolt of lightning, wrapping a tightening noose around his thick neck. His derringer clattered to the floor as he gasped for air through purpling lips. Slowly and lovingly, the locks of hair, animated by their own malice, inched the flailing mage closer and closer to Asami's outstretched fingers. The lights were pounding behind her eyes once more, and the voice rang through her skull. Finish him. Asami screamed in triumph as her neatly kempt nails dug into the soft flesh of Titus' ruined throat. As a crimson shower washed over her fingers, Asami knew that the thirst for vengeance had not just been the product of the voice. It was wholly hers. For the first time in her miserable, sheltered life, she felt as free as the blood flowing in her hands. Panting with exhaustion and covered in gore, Asami finally collapsed beside the corpses of both Titus and her father. Her hair fell at her shoulders once again, all animus gone from the sterile locks. 
She did not see the five saffron-robed arrivals pour from the surrounding rooftops into the courtyard like hornets from a hive. Nor did she notice how hidden snipers struck the two remaining arcanists with divine precision. Too delirious to grieve that help had arrived so late, Asami felt nothing but emptiness, as five pairs of strong arms lifted her broken body gently onto a bamboo stretcher and away into the night. That's it for another episode of the Breachside Broadcast. Join us next time for part two of Hunger Unbound.